We are going to continue this morning in the study of Revelation. As, we, as you know, we go systematically through the book, verse by verse, and we are now in chapter 11. Chapter 11, we're going to talk about the two witnesses. Uh, and the key verse for us is Revelation chapter 11, verse 3. And he says, I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Sackcloth. So we want to talk about them uh, today and just continue our study in that. So if you've got your Bibles here this morning, let us open it up in that passage. And like I said, friends, prayer is important. And we as a church need to come together and pray. Uh, we shouldn't take anything for granted in life. Nothing. We go to God and we pray for Him and He... You know what the Bible says? Every prayer of ours become a petition with Him. Did you know that? Did you know the Bible says that? Let me read it for you, just quickly before we go into the Word. It says in 1 John chapter 5, if you want to open up there and make a mark in your Bible, it's always helpful. It's always helpful when you do this, because then one day you go, oh, what was that verse that he said? And once you've made a mark, you know where it is in your Bible. So 1 John chapter 5. Uh, as you know, I've got a new Bible, and, and for me to find that, is, the, the pages seems to stick to one another. 1 John chapter 5. Look at this now, verse 14. 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. He says, Now, this is the confidence that we have in Him. Do you have confidence in God this morning? Do you? Do you have that? He talks about confidence here. Confidence is to have confidence in an object. You have confidence on the seat that you are sitting this morning. Is it secure? Yes. You need to make sure that the, the seat that you're sitting on, the chair that you're sitting on, is secure. You've got confidence in it. That's the object. And he gives us the object in that first line there. He says it to us. He says, now this is the confidence that we have, not in the government, not in the world, not in money, but in him. Who's the him? In Jesus is in God. Okay. He says that if we ask anything, anything, according to His will, what happens? He hears us. I meet so many people, they say, when I pray, it feels as if my prayer is hitting the ceiling. Is that you? <laughs> I've heard it so often. Why, why does it feel as if my prayers aren't answered? They are answered. God answers every single prayer. It's either no, and we have to live with the no's in life, or it is wait. Just wait. The time is not right for you. Oh, but I want to have it now, Lord. You know, when we were young children, we want to have that lolly, and we say, Mom, Dad, I want to have it now, when we throw a tantrum. You know, God don't want tantrums. He's not going to respond to your tantrum. No. He says to you, wait, because I know what's good for you. At the right time, it will happen. But it's an answered prayer. And then, oh, it's so wonderful when God says what? Yes. And He grants you your prayer. If we have a testimony service here about prayers that's been answered, you'll be amazed. We don't have, we'll have enough time in the day. 
God answers prayers every single day. And here, here John says it here. He says the object of our prayers is our Heavenly Father. And we have the confidence in Him. In Him. Not in man. Remember last week when I read that passage for you? He said, cursed is the, is the man who trusts in who? In man. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. Trust. Trust is built on confidence. is built on faith. It's so wonderful when the Bible completes itself. It's so wonderful. Let me tell you, dear brothers and sisters, when I preach these words out of the Bible, who hears this? Are you hearing my voice? Is it loud and clear? Is my accent good? Is my vocabulary good? Guess who hears it as well? I'm hearing it as well. I'm preaching and I hear my own preaching. And you know what, brothers and sisters? Not my voice. Look, I get tired of my voice. But the Word of God, you can never get tired of it. And there's something that happens inside of me even when I preach the Word. If I tell you stories, it's nonsense. Man, you, you'll get tired of it. But if I preach the Word, you know what happens? I hear it. Oh man, and there's the satisfying in my heart going on. Why? Because I've got confidence in Him. It's so wonderful. Let me continue. He says it right there. He says, if we ask anything according to His will. There is the key. According to His will. I hear so many prayers as people pray and I go, that's not according to God's will, it's according to your will. That's what you want. It's not what you need, it's what you want. And God is so wonderful that He do give you so many times what you want. He gives you what you want. But that want needs to be according to His will. It is what you want to do for what you pray for. Think about that. What do you want to do for what you pray for? If you pray for the salvation of souls, is that according to His will? Yes. What do you want to do with that? The care of the people around you is so hard, a weight on your heart, on your mind, that you pray for them. It's not about you. It's about them. That is according to His will. Look, this is just a quick key for you here. Whenever you pray, ask yourself, what do I want to do with this? If we pray for somebody who's sick, do you feel that pain? No, you don't. Who feels the pain? They feel the pain. So who do you pray now for? It's not according to your will. It's according to His will. And say, my Lord, my Father, I see my brother and my sister. I see how they hurt. I bring them in as a petition to you. I care for them. There you go. So many people get no answers for their prayers. Why? Go and do an inspection on your prayers. Is it about you? Is it about me, myself, and I? He says it right there. He says anything, if we ask anything. What does anything mean? Anything. <laughs> According to His will, He hears us. And now in verse 15, He says, And if we know that He hears us, what will happen? Whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of Him. What is a petition? You put it in and it's going to get attention. Just thought I'd bring it out to you this morning. It is important that you pray for me. I want you to pray for me as the preacher of this church. You need to pray for me. Have you prayed for me this week? You have to constantly pray. Look, there is, there is, there is so many attacks on the people who preach the Word of God. And I need your prayer. I can't live without it. 
Are you praying for this church? I'm telling you today that we are looking for helpers. My prayer every week is, Lord, send helpers. I can't be the only one who's happy here in the front. I say, Lord, send people. Send people to help, to lift your work, Lord. It's His work. Praise the Lord. So that is why it is important for us to pray and that we started this morning with a, a mini prayer meeting. Can you have a mini prayer meeting? No, no, a prayer meeting is never a mini prayer meeting. It is massive in God's eyes. Amen. A five-minute prayer can do much more than an hour's uh, preaching. And I'm not diminishing preaching. I'm not diminishing it at all. Praise the Lord. So let's look at the two witnesses this morning. As you open up in your Bible in Revelation chapter 11, we're going to start at verse 1. It says in verse 1, Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it. For it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will treat the holy city underfoot for 42 months, three and a half years. Remember, we are dealing with what's coming in the future. Is there a temple in Jerusalem right now? No. And the right answer is not yet. Because there is a temple coming and we'll talk about that. This is things that will come hereafter. Metatauta, you remember when we look at chapter 1, he says, write three things. The things which were, which you have seen, which was Jesus Christ. The things which are the church age where we are living in, the dispensation of grace. And then he says, write down the things which will come after this. Metatauta, in chapter 4 verse 1, he says, metatauta after the church age. So that is still in the future. It's still coming. And this is one of those. The place here is Jerusalem, and the time here is the first part of the tribulation. And we have now, in this passage that we read here, a restored temple. The temple has been restored, and it was under the protection and the guidance of the Antichrist that will come, that this temple will be built. If you go up there now, right now, today, and try to build the temple, what will happen? There will be a war. There'll be blood flowing. There'll be a lot of killings going on. Why? Because the Muslims also grab part of that and they believe it's theirs. There's a dome there. So if we sit here today and we look at world events right now, it seems impossible that this temple will be able to build there. So it's going to take one person to come in and to set forth a peace treaty to sit down and speak to the Jews and speak to the Muslims and somehow accept and give the approval that this temple needs to be built. It seems impossible where we are sitting here right now, isn't it? But let me be perfectly clear, dear friends. This is not for me a sign that I'm waiting for to determine whether Jesus Christ will return or when. I know there's people out there who says we're waiting and once we see the temple, we as a church see the temple, His coming is near. Let me tell you today, His coming is as clear as one second away. He can come every, any minute. 
He can come in the next hour. So I'm not looking out, in, in, in out for signs and everything to wait for Him to come. He can come. But this temple will be built. Let's just have a quick uh, look at this. And uh, First of all, let's look at the, uh, the measuring there because it's interesting. He says he's been giving a reed like a measuring rod. Two words there that he uses. The first word there is reed. It comes from the Greek word kalamos, which is a reed that's next to the water. And then he uses the word measuring rod, which is from the word rabdos. And it's so wonderful. You say, what is so important about that? Well, if you think about these things that's happening here, when he talks about these things, it is all things that these people would know about. The rod and the staff. Where do we find that? In Psalm 23. I'm going to read it to you. And if you want to, you can open up in Psalm 23. It says in Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in pastures green. He leads me beside still waters. He restoreth my soul and He leads me in the paths of righteousness. For, for His, uh, um, He leads me for His namesake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for You are with me. Your rod and Your staff, they comfort me. Your rod and Your staff, they comfort me. A rod is for correction. The shepherd used it. Sometimes the sheep will walk out a little bit and they will just hit it with the rod on the leg. Did you know they use the, the rod sometimes to break the leg so that they pick up the sheep and they carry them on their shoulders? The, the leg heals, but that sheep becomes so close in that connection with the shepherd. Sometimes he takes stuff from us away and we think, what happened, Lord? You hit us with a rod. It's to bring us closer to him. And then a staff is a wonderful thing. A staff is being used to guide, to guide the sheep. The staffs that they had had a hook in the one end, isn't it? And he could use the staff to pull the neck closer, just around the neck and pull them closer. And this is what we learn from this passage. And here it says that he's been given this. Who's been given this? John. You see, John was sitting and he was watching the whole time. And now he's a little bit more hands-on. He's been giving a reed, which is like a measuring rod. And that was given to him to measure. And the, the measuring has two purposes. One is for ownership and protection. If you start measuring something out, what is it? It's your ownership. If you buy something, you just bought a house. And you go and you measure out your your estate, your real estate, that belongs to you. And the, the point that he wants to make here, that God wants to make here, is that that place that he's going to measure belongs to him. It is for protection and it's for ownership. You say, why, why in the future has it been given to John to measure things out? It is to show that God's protection will be over this place. And the second one is for judgment. There's two reasons why this is measured in the Bible. And we find it in 2 Samuel chapter 8. There's so many other passages, but for time's sake, I'm just taking one. And there's so many you can go in and see the measuring. God loves to measure. God is a meticulous counter. He knows His numbers. 
He's much more smarter and clever than Einstein. Much more. And when he measures something because he's the owner of it, then he knows exactly, exactly where it went and where it stopped. And we find some passages which gives us a directive in that. In 2 Samuel 8 verse 1, it says, After this it came to pass that David attacked the Philistines and subdued them, and David took Methech Amar from the hand of the Philistines. Then he defeated Moab, forcing them down to the ground, and he measured them off with a line. He started measuring them off. He pushed them down on the ground. Everybody lays down. And then they took a line and they started measuring them down uh, with a line. With two lines, he measured of those to be put to death. There we find it. That measurement is a measurement of judgment. These ones who's been measured off by that line is going to do what? They're going to die. And then, what happens then? He says, and with one full line, those to be kept alive... So the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. So two things that is associated with measuring. One is for protection. Right there, David, when he measured with the one line, what did they do? They became part of him. And he protected them. They're under his protection. But the double line that he measured down, they were killed. That was a judgment. And here we find the same in Revelation that was going to come. He was giving a read like a measuring rod. And there's two reasons for this measuring over here. The context here in Revelation chapter 11 is a context of protection. The measuring here is about protection. And it also shows that in the chaos that is about to come, that God is still in control. And what can we learn from that? Have you had chaos in your life? Have you had trouble in your life? You know what? God is not outside of that. He still measures that. And He's in control of that. It's a clear picture of God showing that He is in control of this. In Zechariah chapter 2 verse 1, He says, Then I raised my eyes and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. So I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem to see what is its width and what is its length. You know what? That little real estate there, which is the center point of the earth, it is so important for the rest of the world, but it's God's land. I don't hear a lot of hallelujahs around that. But that's God's real estate. In the Old Testament, he, he messes it. He gives exactly the lines that belongs to, to Israel. But then, in that city, Jerusalem, that belongs to God. And the Bible is full of measurements. Measurements. There's one in Zechariah where he messes down Jerusalem. And guess what's going to happen by this time in the future? Jesus Christ is going to come back and He's going to set up His kingdom where? In Melbourne. No. No, no chances of that. He's going to set it up in Jerusalem. It's a measured place. But here in, in Revelation, He's been given this read. And look at this. He's been given a read to do what? To measure three things. The temple of God, the altar, which is the brazen altar on the outside, and the priest that access to this altar, and those who worship there. It is interesting that 
two of those things are physical things that can be measured, and the third one is worship. Is worship. Now, I absolutely believe that the church will be removed from the earth when this measuring takes on. The church is in heaven, but there is going to be people who come to Christ and they're going to worship God. And how can we apply to us today? God is measuring your worship even today. How are you worshiping God? How are you worshiping Him? Do you know that God is measuring your worship? And it's not the one who sings the loudest. That's not what worship is. It's not the one who says the loudest hallelujah of the, the most correctness. Hallelujah. It's not that one. It's not the one who, who's jumping up and down like they try to worship these days or getting a, a spiritual a workout a, aerobics. It's not that. Worship comes from the heart. Worship is every single day. And it's measured by God. And that's that scripture that you wanted to say this morning. He says, these people, what is it? Their mouths are singing with me. They are worshiping and they say it with correctness. Hallelujah. And they so perfectly pitch perfect. But the word says their hearts, their hearts are far from me. God measures worship. He measures it. It's important to know. He says it right there that he is going to measure this worship in future. The altar and the worship. And I absolutely believe, do you know, there's a few things that's happening right now in the world that you may or may not know about, but there's an institute of, of uh, the Institute of Temple, uh, the Temple Institute in Jerusalem. And these people are actively, today while we are sitting here, they are getting ready to build the temple, to rebuild the temple. Here is a few uh, pictures of them, photos of them. That is the menorah there. It's already been made. They already worship around it. They're already blowing their trumpets around the menorah. That there is pure gold. That thing weighs tons. They had to move it. Look at that. They had to get cranes in to move the menorah. It's not in its place yet, but it's getting ready. I've got so many photos I wanted to show you. But look, there's so many things. Even the priest's clothing is already ready to go. They are waiting. They're waiting for somebody for the right time to get it done. This here is the Ark of the Covenant. If you can read really, really closely there down at the bottom, they say it. I thought it was going to show bigger, but they say it right there at the bottom, down at the bottom there in that line. You can come afterwards, and I can't read it now because I thought I was going to read it. But they say that you can donate, donate, so that when they restore the temple, you, they've got enough to put it. They've got enough, but they want you to donate to the rebuilding of the temple. There is a, a temple coming in Jerusalem. Now I've got no doubt about it. It's going to be built. They know where it's going to be as well. And, and the, the measurements where the temple is going to be when they take the foundations of where it was when it was destroyed in 70 AD, they say that that means they thought the dome that's there needed to break to be broken down. They thought it had to be broken down and then the temple come. But it works out like the one rabbi worked it out with aerial shots and with, with uh, they worked out that the outer court is exactly where the dome is. So the dome which is there now and the temple can coexist together. How wonderful is that? Because we read further on about this. 
he says, measure this temple. It's coming. Uh, they are looking for a red heifer. Have you heard about the red heifer? Red heifer is an animal. And it's got to be perfect. And once they find the red heifer, they say they've got it and they've cloned and so on. They take this, this animal and they burn it to ashes. And they, this is for a cleansing of the nation. There hasn't been one since the temple has been destroyed in 70 AD. Once they find this and the temple is there, they can go back to their sacrifices. They burn this animal to ashes and take those ashes and put it in their water and they drink it and they believe it will cleanse them. People, it's happening around us in the world. While you are looking at everything that's going on, false flags in America and Britain and all of these things, there is another movement that's going on. Everything is coming to place. Things are moving faster than what you think. They are just waiting for that Antichrist to bring that total peace. And it's not Donald Trump. <laughs> He's not the Antichrist. I don't believe that. So we are sitting here and we, we see all of these things. And then he says in verse 2, but leave out. It is the, the Greek word ekbalo, which means to remove it from divine favor. I want you to see the, the two contrasts here. He uses the word there, but in, in verse 2, what does but mean? It's a sharp contrast. He says in the first one, he says measure with this rod, which is a, a rod to direct and to punish. He says measure it out, the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. They are under the protection of God. Then there is a, a but, which means a contrast. And then he uses this word, but leave out. That is ekbalo. It means to be removed from divine favor. Divine favor. So everything which is within the measurement is within the protection of divine favor, at least for the first three and a half years of that tribulation period. And then, and then those on the outside, those on the outside, they're not in that divine protection. Friend, are you in the divine protection of, of the Lord today? Are you? It's important to answer that question this morning. Are you in the divine? Because I'll tell you one thing. It is a terrible, dangerous world out there not to be in the protection of God. And now he, he continues, he says, but leave out, what? The court which is outside the temple and do not measure it. For it has been given to the Gentiles and they will treat the holy city underfoot for 42 months, three and a half years. It's happening now. It's been undertrodden since 606. 606 BC because that's when they started taking over Jerusalem. And the Jews, although they are coming back to Jerusalem and own parts of it, hasn't owned the whole of Jerusalem yet. It's been undertrodden by the Gentiles. You see, everything is coming in place for what is going to happen and, and the amazing thing which I get so excited about is that when Jesus Christ returns at the second coming, at the second coming and is going to put His feet on the Mount of Olives and walk in there and set up His kingdom, He will build a new millennial kingdom. Praise the Lord! And He will get rid of the tribulational kingdom, uh, temple. Two temples. This is the one that man builds. And let me just clear this out for you. I mean, I remember when I was pastoring in New Zealand, there was a Jewish group who approached me, and they had coffee with me, and we sat down, and they said, look, what is your church's view on Israel? I said, I believe God's still got a plan for Israel. Great, great, so you're not a replacement theologist. I said, no, I'm not. But they then wanted to pull our church into 
into these, these worships in the temple again. Into these feasts again. And I go, why do I have to do that if I have Jesus Christ? They didn't like that conversation. They wanted our church to support that financially and to bring the church into that. And then we're going to go through these feasts. And there are so many people who want to revive the feasts. Friend, I don't have to revive any feast. My feast is Jesus Christ. You know what? The feast of the Old Testament is a shadow of the substance. The feast of the Old Testament shows us towards what? Towards Jesus Christ. And the word today is He's come. He's come. I now look backwards to the feast, and you know what? It builds my faith. It builds my knowledge. It builds my wisdom. And when I look back in the Old Testament, the feasts that happen, I say, thank you, God. Because that's the shadow, and now we have the substance. So this church in future will not be, become part of restoring the feasts. I'm not. If you are looking for that, then sorry. I'm just telling you what the Word of God is teaching us. I have got Jesus Christ and Him only. I don't have to now restore things and to, to kill animals again. I've had once a man who came to me in New Zealand to church. He says, oh, pastor, you know what we should do? Let's get the church together. We'll go to one of these camps and do it on a camp. And we do, we get an animal and we then sacrifice the animal like they did it. Like they did it. I said, really? He says, yes, we did it in our church in South Africa. Man, what a blessing that was. I said to him, you know what? I don't have to burn animals in front of my little children. You know why? Because the sacrifice hanged on the cross for us already. I'm not killing animals anymore. He says, this is the new covenant. He says in verse 3, he says, and I will give power to my two witnesses. And now appear on the scene the two witnesses. And they will prophesy 1,260 days. Clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devour the enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain fall in the days of their prophecy, and they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. It is interesting to find now that a desire is given to man, isn't it? As often as they desire. Why would God give that kind of control over to man? Have you ever wondered about that? They will have desire, you know, as often as they desire. What can they do? They can turn water into blood and strike the earth with plagues. That's a little bit of, 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 uh, of dangerous, isn't it? But no, these aren't just two ordinary men. No, these men spend time with God on the earth and in heaven. And look, there's a lot of people who's got a lot of debates about who these two men are. So let me start from this point of view. Although I'm going to put names to you this morning, I can't 100% securely say that it is these two men. Let's just be clear about that. I can tell you who I believe they are. But if God wanted their names in there, He would have said their names right there. He would have said, this is so and so. <clears throat> but now what we do is we do exegesis of the Bible. We go back and we say, 
some of these things look as if they were the means. There's people who say it is uh, Enoch is one of the men and Moses. Because Enoch walked with the Lord and he's up with the Lord and he didn't die on the earth and all the men must die. And there's some truth to that. And then others say it's Moses and Elijah. And I hold more to that viewpoint that it is Moses and Elijah will come. Why? Because if you look at these two things here, then it talks more towards that. It talked more towards these two men. You remember Moses? He was under the instruction of God in the land of Egypt to do what? To turn water into blood. So he's already done what he said that these two men were going to do. They're going to turn water into blood. And by the way, would you want to live in a place where water has been turned into blood? Can you imagine opening up your tap this morning and there's just blood coming out? That sounds like a horror movie, isn't it? Or then you say, well, let's go and find out from the neighbors. And they go, oh, it's the same thing that's happening with us. Let's go down to the stream. Let's run to the stream. And they come to the stream and it's all blood. It's terrible. We read about it and we think, oh, it's never happened. It's because you didn't live in Egypt when this happened. Back in the day, they didn't have taps there. What did they have? They worked out of the rivers. So they went down to the river and seen things red today. What is this? Dipped in, want to get a fresh glass of water or it's fresh. They pick it out and it's all blood. You know, some people, when they see blood, they go, whoop. <laughs> I've seen a lot of blood in my time. I was in the army as well. You know, you see blood. It, it's just there. It's not a nice thing. And you don't drink blood. It doesn't satisfy your thirst. But here these men, Moses did that in Exodus chapter 7, verse 17. And there were other plagues as well. It's not only the blood that he talks about there. And he says, with the earth, with all plagues. They were all kind of plagues that Moses, under the instruction of God, did. So it makes sense to say one of these men could be, or is Moses. And the other one is Elijah. What did Elijah do? He shut up the sky. You remember in 1 Kings when he said, it will not rain. And it didn't rain because of the word that God speak through him. So he's already done this before, and he also called fire down. You remember those prophets? He said, cry harder, cry louder, come on. And, and what happened? And the fire came. And, and not only that, they called fire from heaven. So that puts us in a mindset to think that these two men were Moses and Elijah, or will be Moses and Elijah. And also, if you look at Matthew chapter 17, you remember what happened there? The transfiguration. It's, it's the same two men that, that came out here. He says in verse 1, Now after six days Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on the high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured. Before them his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, is it good that us... Be here, if you wish, let us make there three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. So I hold more to the view that these two men will be Moses and Elijah coming back in the future to this earth. To be these two witnesses. These two witnesses. Why two witnesses? Why not one? Well, again, God is not going to 
going to confuse his word. He's not going against his word. In Deuteronomy chapter 19 verse 15 he says, One witness shall not rise against the man concerning any iniquity or sin that he commits. Listen very carefully. This witness he's talking in Deuteronomy is against the man who commits sin. He says one witness is not good enough. He says by the mouth of two or three witnesses the matter shall be established. You say how does it apply to these men? Well, these men are coming and what are they doing? They are witnessing. They are talking about what? The sin of this earth. It is, um, it is a judgment against the sinners of this earth. They are witnessing. <coughs> I want to just quickly talk about the underlying part there in verse 4. He says, These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. That excites me. You know why? Because, friend, you and I has got same input from that power. You know what I'm talking about? Let me show you. I want you to go with me to... Uh, to Ecclesiastics. Um, I want to show this to you, these two trees. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Oh, Zechariah, bigger pardon. Zechariah chapter 4. He says, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. Now, some people might think, look, this is just emblems he's using, but if you know the Bible, remember what I said a few, well, when we started with Revelation, for you to understand the book of Revelation totally, you need to read the whole Bible. Because we do read about these two olive trees and these lampstands. Here in Zechariah, chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Now the angel who talked with me came back and, and wakened me as a man who wakened out of a sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? And I said, I'm looking, and there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it. And on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. I showed you the menorah. That's looking like a menorah right there. Two olive trees, you see, are by it. One at the right of the bowl and the other is at his left. So I answered and I spoke to the angel who talked with me saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. So he answered and he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. What is he talking about? Let me give you the picture. There's the menorah. There's a big bowl. There's two olive trees. What keeps these lights burning, these candles burning on that menorah? It's the oil of the olive trees. And what these men had to do, they had men, priests, their work in the temple when they walked around, in the tabernacle when they, it could be moved around, they had to go in and fill with little cups those menorahs so that that light keep on burning. But what happens if man can't do it anymore? It will go out. So these priests, that was their work. Here he says, we're not relying on man for this power. It's these two olive trees and somehow 
the olive oil out of these trees fill this bowl which fills the light. Man, I get excited about that. You know why? Because we have the same today. We have the same. So the olive trees produces oil to give the power to keep the lights going. So, the Holy Spirit gives to you and me the power to keep the lights going. You say, where are you coming from? This is absurd. No, it's not. Go in your Bible now to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Uh, we find Jesus, after he's been resurrected, and just before he ascends up into heaven in Acts chapter 1. Praise the Lord. As I'm breaking a new Bible in. He says in Acts chapter 1, now look at this in verse 8. I'm going to read to you to get context from verse 6. He says, Therefore when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Will you restore the kingdom of Israel? And he didn't answer that question. See what he answers. He says, and he said to them, It is not for you to know at times seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. So yes, some kind of in. But then he says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And man, that power, you know what people did with those things? They said that's the Holy Spirit baptism. That is the power. And now there's funny things happening under that power. Have you got the power, brother? Have you got the power, sister? And who strange things happen? People ask me, what are you affiliated with? And I say, I'm a Pentecostal. And they go, oh, that's great. You're one of us. I say, no, no, no. Let me explain to you what I mean by I'm a Pentecostal. So you move in the power, brother. Oh, yes, I do. Because it says it right there. Who's the power? Come on. The Holy Spirit. He says, you will receive power. I was uh, at a conference at a, at a camp. I was invited to go and preach at the Disabled Trust in New Zealand. There were 400 to 450 people in the room. So you've got your disabled and your able bodies there. And I was preaching. And I preached this verse, this verse. And I said to the crowd there, because some of these young people come from these vibrant churches. You know those churches? Man, they love the power. The power. Ooh, the power. Fire, power. And I preached that day this verse. And I came to the word power. And I said, you know what this word means? It comes from the Greek word dynamis. Dynamis. You know what a dynamis is? That's where we get your word dynamo from. What is a dynamo? It's something that continues on and on and on and on. You're dynamic, Yes. You understand that word? What does it mean if you say to somebody that they, they, they're dynamic? They, it, mean, it, it seems as if they've got power, unending power. Is that right? And there's another word, dynamite. That's where the two words, these root words come from that. So the Pentecostal circles grab the word dynamite. Oh, it's an explosion. <laughs> and it happened. On the day of Pentecost, there was an explosion, yes? But they concentrate on that one. Then I said that day, like I'm saying today, let's put it in context. I think the word dynamo is more applicable to this verse. 
<coughs> they say, why? I say for you this reason, if you read the verse further on, he says, you will receive power. Now, have in your mind these two olive trees standing there and filling that bowl with olive oil. Have in your mind the Holy Spirit to you is a constant flow of power from heaven above. It's a constant flow of power into you today if you're a child of God. To do what? It says it right there. Let's read. It says it, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be what? witnesses witnesses and you know what that word witnesses means there it comes from the greek word martyr you know what martyr means it means to die <laughs> hallelujah this sounds now strange isn't it i will receive constant power what does power do it keeps you going but it says to die to die well, how does that make sense to you and me i will receive power to be a witness. Friend, it's not in your own power, but we will become the witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's Him. He will sustain you to be that witness. So yes, I'm a Pentecostal, but I'm a dynamic Pentecostal, not a dynamite Pentecostal. Yes? He says you will receive power. And this is now what gets me excited about these two men. They are like those trees that is like... Let's just, just turn to Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21. Uh, uh, 24. Bigger Luke chapter 24. We find Jesus now, the last, very last chapter. Um, I'm going to read from verse 45 just to give you context again. And he opened their understanding so that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, thus it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name. This is our message. To all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. The same word, martyr. You will die for what you witness. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you that tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endured with power from on high. From power, that's the word dynamos there again. You see, all we are doing is we are following our Savior's footsteps. We're following Jesus. That's all we do. Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 says that he was the first witness. What did he do? He died. He died. So here we find these two men, and I believe that that is so wonderful to see that they are the two lampstands standing before God, constantly getting the power from the olive tree, like you and I get the power from the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you, friend, the Holy Spirit is important in our Christian walk. It is important. It is important that you are filled with the Holy Spirit, constantly. I'm not talking baptism and every time there's a baptism, there's a baptism. No, but we can be filled constantly with the Holy Spirit. Let's finish off this morning. In verse 11, 7, chapter 11, verse 7, it says, When they finish their testimony, these two men, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit, and we know where this is, isn't it? We found this bottomless pit in Revelation chapter 9, verse 11. We know and I believe that this will be Satan himself will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And by the way, there is a movement to say that these two men is the church. 
I don't agree with that. They say, he says them. They, they use the word, no, no, there were two witnesses coming, which I believe will be those two men. He will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. Now look at the reaction now. And their bodies, their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city. Look at this now. Great city, which is spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Where is that? Jerusalem. But it's called the great city. Great city in the Bible refers to Babylon, the headquarters of the Antichrist. Okay? It's called Sodom. Sodom represents immor immor immoral behavior. If you go back to Sodom, what, what was happened there? Gay and lesbianism. Sodom is immorality. And then the word for Egypt there means what? Oppression and slavery. Those words comes into this now. And then those from the people's tribes, tongues, and nations will see their bodies three and a half days and not allow their bodies to be put into the graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry and send gifts to one another because these two prophets of torment those who dwell on the earth. Remember they could call plagues, they could call fire down, all of those things. They tormented them. Not only by that, the biggest torment was what? Their message. You say, how can this happen? They're going to lie there in the streets for three and a half days? Yeah. Have you heard something called CNN? And, the, and CNN will make sure they give you fake news around it. <laughs> Just thought I'd throw that one in. MBSC, have you heard about that? Can you imagine that it happens and every single time people walking past the TV, doesn't matter where they are, Look on the skin. Oh, look at them. Ah, wow, look at that. It says there they made merry. They become drunk about it. Hey, man, let me buy drinks on everyone on me today. Ah, look at that. To the shame. They think they shame them. Because in the Old Testament, remember when they leave the bodies out there, the birds of the air come and they pick them and so on. It is an absolute sign of shame. They make merry, send gifts to one another. Gifts. No. Let me not go there. What happens then? After the three and a half days, breath of life of God entered them. Breath of life of God. I, look, friends, we can't imagine the feelings that will go through people. We can't. But can you just think for a moment what happens here? The TVs are there, day and night. Spotlights on them. People laugh at them, make fun of them. They are dead. And now the breath of life comes back into them and they stood on their feet and a great fear. What happens here? The opposite of their merriness and joy now turns into fear fell on those who saw them and they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and the enemy saw them. This is coming. It's coming. Now, I would have thought if people run around with guns and so on, that will fear them, and bombs. And it's, it's a massive fear for people today. Here he talks about a great fear will come upon these people. 
They've seen the unknown. They've seen the unknown and the power of the unknown. I finish with this thought for you. Paul walks through Athens and he sees all these statues. All these things that men have built up for them and they worship them. Zeus, Jupiter. It's impressive. I mean, I want to go to Greek because I think it's a, it's a rich culture. I want to go there. And, I, and what happens? I was in Rome last year. When I walked through Rome and I see all of these things around me, you know what, what word came over my mouth? Impressive. When you go to the ruins in Rome next to, to the Colosseum, when you stand at the Colosseum physically, you look up at this thing. It is impressive, isn't it, Gavin? I mean, Gavin was there as well with Alex. I don't know if there's anybody else. It's impressive. I walk through the ruins and they show where these people lived. And I look at one of the pillars, man. I look at that pillar and I go, I'm so small. Even if you walk up to the Colosseum, there's a massive building there. And you stand there and I, honestly, I feel like a little dwarf against this thing. It's impressive. It's massive. Massive. This is what Paul experienced in the heyday of Athens. He walks through there and it's good. And then he comes to this one, this one plague. And this, the plague on this says, to the unknown God. To the unknown God. The fear of that unknown God hasn't grabbed Athens then. The fear hasn't grabbed them because they don't know Him. When He spoke to them in the Opagoras, when He sat there with all of the brilliant minds, He says, I want to talk to you about the unknown God. Friend, let me tell you today, the God is unknown to this world today. But there cometh a day, you hear my voice today, when a great fear will fall upon every man on this earth when they meet that unknown God. My question before I pray is, do you know the unknown God this morning? If you do, your life will change out of a fear for the unknown God. Ponder and think about that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am absolutely too small to contemplate every single thing that I've preached today. I'm just standing here under the instruction and unction of the Holy Spirit and through His power, Lord. These things that we are reading about and learning and, and, and Father, the revelation is about Jesus Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ. What can we learn about the measuring of this temple, the altar, the worshippers and the two witnesses? And these words at the end, Lord, great fear fell upon them. When? When they encountered the unknown God. Father, my prayer is this morning that there be no person in this place or who hears my voice that don't know God. My prayer is for them because, Lord, it is terrible to fall into the hands of this unknown God. I thank you, Lord, that we can know you and that you send Jesus Christ, who in the garden of Gethsemane, Father, 
took the cup of wrath on our behalf so that we don't have to stand in that full wrath. I thank you for that in Jesus' name. You shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace and the mountains and the hills will break forth before you there'll be shouts of joy and all the trees of the fields will clap will clap their hands sing it again you shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace and the mountains and the hills will break forth before you there'll be shouts of joy and all the streets of the field will clap will clap there and again one more time you shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace and the mountains and the hills will break forth before you there'll be shouts of joy and all the streets of the field will clap will clap their hands and all the trees of the fields will clap their hands the trees of the fields will clap their hands the trees of the field will clap their hands while you go out with joy and you shall go out with joy and be let forth with peace and the mountains and the hills will break forth before you there'll be shouts of joy and all the trees of the field will clap will clap their hands and all the trees of the field will clap their hands the trees of the field will clap their hands the trees of the field will clap their hands while you go one more time now oh yes you will go out with joy and be let forth with peace and the mountains and the hills will break forth before you there'll be shouts of joy and all the trees of the field will clap will clap their hands and all the trees of the field will clap their hands the trees of the fields will clap their hands the trees of the fields will clap their hands while you go out with joy. Amen. That's got a nice beat to it, isn't it? And I just thought when I set it up, Jerusalem in the background, the wailing wall. Amen. God is so good. Amen.